This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. I'd like to thank our sponsors who make our podcast possible. We take our podcast with the ongoing support of Raider and Jason Sikora, our sound engineer. Raider is a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Iberia Bank and First Horizon, who are now one bank. Two relationship-driven banks, both leaders in the industry, have officially joined forces. The combination of Iberia Bank and First Horizon creates a leading financial services company dedicated to enriching the lives of their clients, associates, and their communities. I'd also like to thank Lafayette General Health, who has joined the Oshner Health family and is now Oshner Lafayette General. As one health system, Oshner Lafayette General will provide expanded services and enhanced care from the familiar faces you already trust. Oshner Lafayette General means more resources to help solve healthcare's toughest problems, reinvesting in our communities, and being further committed to health and wellness. Oshner Lafayette General, together means more. Learn more today at togethermeansmore.org. Our guest is Galen White, author of The Best Little Baseball Town in the World, an historical account of a minor league baseball team, the Crowley Millers, in the 1950s. Galen was a sports writer for the Denver Post, Arizona Republic, and Oklahoma Journal before working in the corporate world. He is the author of various books highlighting careers in baseball minor leagues, including The Bilco Athletic Club, the story of the 1956 Los Angeles Angels, Singles and Smiles, How Artie Wilson Broke Baseball's Color Barrier. He also co-authored Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer. Of local interest to us, the Crowley Millers were the talk of minor league baseball in the 1950s, with crowds totaling nearly 10 times Crowley's population and earning Crowley the nickname of the best little baseball town in the world. And Galen White, I've done some research on you. I'm really excited about not only talking about your book, but learning more about your love for the sport of baseball and what led you to write these books, and in particular, the best little baseball town in the world. So thank you for joining us well, here. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're here in my home. We're taping um, along with my daughter, Kelly, who's going to be helping us. She's interning for the summer. And I had the opportunity to read your book. And it's so well-written, and through it all, it's peppered with statistics about minor league, major league, the Evangeline League, which was really interesting to me, because I didn't realize our background here, how important minor league baseball was in this part of the world. One of the reasons for writing the book was to keep alive the legacy of the Crowley-Millers, the ballpark that they play in that's still here. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's looking better than ever. And uh, the storied past of the Evangelique, which was established in 1934 and lasted until 1957. There was a, a little time out for World War II. Right. But just a colorful league. In fact, it was known as the best little league in baseball. And, of course, that was before there was Little League. But oh, it was a, it was okay. a Class D league, and it produced a number of uh, major leaguers. Uh, uh, 
a Hall of Famer named Hal Neuhauser, uh, who won over 200 games in the majors, and then Virgil Fire Trucks, colorful nicknames in those days. <laughs> he he was a teammate of uh, Hal Neuhauser, and Virgil Trucks won 177 games in the majors. And then you go on, uh, Ed Lopat, who was a Yankee, a great Yankee pitcher in the 50s. He came out of the Evangel League, so it produced a number of major league players prior to the war. After the war, it didn't produce as many. It was then a Class C league. Uh, but in the last two years, uh, the teams became affiliated with major league teams. And so several um, major league players came out of the league. And I write about one of them in the book, George Brunette. Right. Now, let's talk about you before we get into details of the book. You love sports. You right. were a sports writer. Right. And you grew up in Los Angeles. And you must have gotten your love from baseball growing up in your family. A lot of your major league teams today were at one time minor league teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, Houston was a minor league city for many years. When I was born in 1946, uh, Los Angeles was a minor league city. Uh, the Dodgers didn't move to L.A. until 1958. Brooklyn. Yeah, right. That's right. They came from Brooklyn. And yeah. when they went out there, of course, many people were happy to see Major League Baseball come out. I yeah. was not. And the reason I wasn't was because my team was the Los Angeles Angels, and they played in this beautiful ballpark called Wrigley Field. There was a Wrigley Field in Los Angeles prior to the one in Chicago. had brick walls, ivy, beautiful ballpark. Mm-hmm. They called it the friendly confines of Wrigley Field in uh, Los Angeles as well. And that's where I started to go to baseball games with my father when I was four or five, six years old. Oh, my gosh. And I always remember yeah. sitting next to him. He would buy a newspaper. It was cheaper than a program. He'd buy a newspaper for a nickel, and on the outside, they had the lineups. He'd get a little pencil, and then we'd sit next to each other, and we'd take turns keeping score. And that's that was it. Yeah. And that bond, my father was a minister. He was a very busy man. This was his escape. Mm-hmm. And it was my time to bond with my father because I didn't have a whole lot of one-on-one time with him right. other than that. Right. My older brother would go with us. He was uh, seven years older, very fine athlete. He'd be out in the right field bleachers getting souvenir baseballs. We never had to buy a baseball growing up because he was so quick and so good mm-hmm. at getting souvenir baseballs. So that's those are my memories. And what I contend is uh, if you look at the baseball in the 1950s, there were 16 major league teams. There's about double that today. Uh, that means that there were only 400 roster spots, 25 players to each team, in the major leagues. Minor Leagues, meanwhile, uh, in 1949, there were 59 leagues, 400-something teams. So uh, the the places for in the majors were, it was hard to make it to the majors. Mm -hmm. And most of your teams were in the minor leagues. And most of your fans, when they came into contact with a player, it was at the minor league level. Uh, Of the 16 major league teams, 11 of them were in five cities. Really? New York had three. Boston had two. Philadelphia had two, St. Louis had two, and Chicago had two. So most of the country, in terms of baseball being its national pastime, where it earned that reputation was in the small towns of America. And so that's why the minor leagues are so important, because they are the grassroots. And that's where, for example, I saw my first games, and then as the players would come through there Mm -hmm. and going up to the majors, guess what? I had the sense of belonging. They were representing me. I saw them. I discovered them when they were playing in my ballpark, in my town, and now they're up in the big leagues. Everyday guys. You're right, everyday guys. And you, they're more accessible in the minor leagues. Right. 
And certainly by today's standards, they weren't prima donnas. I have a question about that. You, you mentioned Babe Ruth in the book, and you know, there's so many colorful references to well-known stars of baseball, but they were not highly paid athletes, even the major league guys, right? It wasn't like today. No. Uh, the, almost all the players had to have off-season jobs. Uh, Babe Ruth, of course, uh, you know, he's famous for his quote that he made more, when he made more money than the president of the United States, and he said, well, I had a better year. <laughs> and that was after he hit 60 home runs in 1927. But in 1921, Babe Ruth and the Yankees visited Crowley. Crowley was the site of an Indianapolis team, which was a minor league team. They were doing their spring training there. The Yankees that year did their spring training in Shreveport. They made a swing starting in Lake Charles. Shreveport. Right. And so they made their swing starting in Lake Charles, coming to Crowley, going to Baton Rouge, and winding up in New Orleans. In Crowley, 2,400 fans turned up uh, at the ballpark. The ballpark was it was a makeshift ballpark. They set up at a horse track at the, at the, at the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. He was met at the train station, a throng of people. And the first reference ever to... Uh, all roads lead to Crowley was in 1921 when Babe Ruth came down. It later became a phrase, all roads pass through Crowley, and I'll explain that later. But all roads lead to Crowley was a line in the Crowley, post, Crowley signal when Babe Ruth came to town in 1921 on St. Patrick's Day. And I was driving through downtown uh, uh, Crowley the other day, and there's the train depot where he came in. And he saw this hotel, a nine-story bank building, He called it a skyscraper. Mm -hmm. Then he made reference to the prosperity that buildings like that uh, create, the images. And so he said he praised Crowley for having grit. Well, that bank building's still there. Then you go on down the street. He went to the Opera House, built in 1904. Mm -hmm. It's been restored. Well, that Opera House is still there. On the dressing room wall, back in the Opera House, he signed the wall. George Herman Ruth, the babe. Right. It's hard to read. But it's it's there. Across the street is the hotel where he stayed at. Then it was called the Egan Hotel. Now it's an office building. And then across the street from the Opera House is the City Hall, which they have uh, created a nice little museum of a recording studio that was once there. And some uh, also the the Ford Motor Company uh, had Mm -hmm. produced some cars there. So the town has done a great job of preserving the restoring. past. Yeah, and, then, and restoring, as you're right. saying. Right, and then yeah. you add uh, Miller Stadium, mm-hmm. which and this is right out of Field of Dreams. They built that ballpark before they had a pro team. They had a very fine semi-pro team. They had wanted to uh, have a pro team, but they, could, they didn't have the stadium in order to accommodate one. So uh, they built the stadium, opened it in September 1948, and they were... T- Hoping to get a, uh, in a league in 49, didn't happen. Finally, there was a new league that came in in 1950. They got into that. But that wasn't the league they wanted. That was the Gulf Coast League. They wanted to be in the Evangel League because where, mm-hmm. that's where all the Louisiana teams were. That's yeah, where actually. New Iberia, right. Lafayette. Uh, there's a great nickname, the Rain Rice Birds, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. The Generate Blues. All these teams in Louisiana had teams prior to Crowley. So Crowley didn't have a team until 1950. The ballpark built in 1948. They restored it in 98. And then this is the amazing thing. During the pandemic, they invested $5 million to put in artificial surface so they could have tournaments and not Mm -hmm. worry about all the rainouts. And also they put in new lighting and new seating. So the ballpark 
today is better than it was when it was built in 48. You know, that shows such leadership. And when, when I was reading your book, I want to get in something else about Babe Ruth in a minute, but a lot has happened in Crowley. That was also the spot where JFK and his beautiful wife, Jacqueline, you know, showed up. And Crowley really has been the spot of many memorable U.S. events. I didn't know where Crowley was when I started working this book. I, I, uh, I've been in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, knew about Baton Rouge because of LSU and the state capitol. I knew about Lafayette because in the corporate world, I had worked with the university in uh, one area. Uh, they have a very fine design school. So I knew about the, and Lake Charles. My father uh, had a minister friend in Lake Charles, and he used to come and okay. uh, hold revivals for about a week. So I knew about Lake Charles, but I'd never been to Lake Charles, Crowley, or Lafayette prior to my first trip here in 2013 to explore, uh, start to research the book. I didn't know it in the beginning. Uh, I envisioned it as a chapter in a previous book. But after I came here and I started to see that this story was bigger than any one chapter, uh, then I started to think of a book. But unlike my other books, I didn't know exactly what form this would take. I obviously didn't have the whole story. That was the reason for a lot of the research I did. In my other books, I went into it pretty much knowing what each chapter was going to look like. I knew about each player. I didn't in the case of Crowley. So as I researched, there were so many surprises that turned Mm -hmm. up. So, for example, I discovered 1959, JFK uh, comes to Crowley, 90,000 people packed Parkinson Avenue, largest crowd that ever saw him speak prior to his becoming president. Kelly's grandparents, my, my deceased uh, in-laws, Judge Bill Swift and Betty, her grandmother, were there for that. That was like a major event Absolutely. in Louisiana, not just Crowley. Oh, JFK promised to eat rice the rest of his life. <laughs> Because Crowley is known as the rice capital right, of America. Right, right. Then Jacqueline gets up there and gives her speech all in French. Mm-hmm. Totally upstaged JFK. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like an outpost of France Right. Crowley. And on this podium that day was uh, uh, Governor Edwards, Edwin mm-hmm. Edwards, four-time governor. He was a lawyer uh, and a member of the city council in, in Crowley. Right, and then right. there was Judge Edmund Reggie, the youngest judge in America. I mean, all these things started to pop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the Reggies stayed close to the right, Kennedys right. throughout. They're so close. And we have photographs in the book of JFK and Jackie, some never seen before. They were taken by a local photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gained access to them through the Reggie family. But to get the actual rights to use them, we had to go through the daughters of the photographer. Oh, I see. And so there's a photograph in the book of JFK with the photographer. A woman named Gidry, which is a very Louisiana name. Right, right. I'm bringing this up because a lot of this is in your book, and it kind of brings to life our local color and culture, you know. Which, which is something people need to be proud of. I've come across, well, you can't miss it, the slogan, Louisiana Proud. But it's not a slogan. It shouldn't be a slogan in Crowley. It, it is a tradition. And I think uh, I'm, I'm seeing, and I'm hoping it builds further, this people look at their past. Don't hang your head. Uh, you know, no town is what it used to be. Right. But you have a wonderful past in this whole region. Mm-hmm. And Crowley is just one part of it. I mean, I write in a book about New Iberia. New Iberia's uh, ballpark, Acadiana ballpark, is still there. Uh, the ballpark that they played in in the 50s, and I write about in the book, it's still there. 
Alexandria, where uh, uh, the Alexandria Aces played. And they were the only city to uh, play every year in the Evangel League. Uh, Bringhurst Field is still there. And that's also the location where the site of one of the more, uh, the most compelling chapter in the book, in my opinion, is the one about the center fielder for the Crowley Millers being struck by lightning Mm -hmm. during a game, the sixth inning of a game. And the next day was Father's Day. And he was to go that night after the game to Doyline, uh, Louisiana, pick up his wife and his six-month-old son and drive him to Crowley for the rest of the season. And, of course, he never made it. Why don't you mention his name while we're on that topic? Andy Strong. And I Uh think I'd be remiss if I didn't say what happened after that. So he was playing. He was playing he center field, play, right? right. Like he, he wasn't. He wanted. He um, the manager Johnny George. This is, life can be strange. Mm-hmm. The manager Johnny Fate. George uh, was trying to work get a substitute player to come in to uh, take his place for that game, so that Andy could get an early start uh, on the drive to pick up his family. Unfortunately, the player who was to come there missed his bus connection. He was in Lake Charles. He had to go through, is it Crot Spring? Yeah. Okay. And he missed his connection there. And so, therefore, he didn't make it to the game in time. And Johnny George, Johnny George, the manager, informed Andy he had to stay. Of course, that was disappointing to Andy. And, of course, uh, the player's name was, uh, I think it's Jack Doyle. He went on to become a very prominent uh, politician, president of a college, I think, Manise State. So he lives, has a very successful career. Andy Strong is standing out there, and he is hit by lightning, and that's the end of his life. Is that amazing, Kelly? I know. I know. I mean, that's such a rare And so the story event. of all that is told through the eyes of the announcer, Ed Kime, the voice of the Millers. As and it was it, happening? Like- right. Well, his signature, there's, everything, there's so much irony in this book. His signature call was, Oh, Happy Day. And he had different inflections. When the Millers would win, he'd say, oh, happy day. Well, he was behind the mic when this has happened. And the first thing that he said, lightning has hit this ballpark. And on my website, galenwhitebaseball.com, there is a soundbite from our interview where Ed talks about what he saw and then what he was thinking. And, of course, in the chapter, Ed also relates, uh, based on his... Uh, he was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. And there was a, a situation he had leading up to the Battle of Bulge with an officer that he was on the ship on going over to Europe. And later on, he was the one who found the officer dead in a mess hall. And so he, he late, years later, he connected the two. And he contends that Andy Strong had a premonition. That's what, yeah, I remember reading that, which is frightening when you think about it. You don't is. always listen to premonitions. Right, we should. Right. And the other thing, too, I hope anybody reads this book and reads that chapter. All too often in, the, in my career, and I was a sports writer and, of course, a sports fan, I've seen too many games played when they shouldn't be played because of bad weather. Mm-hmm. And if you read that chapter, anytime you see the possibility of lightning, you ought to clear the field, right. clear the stands. Because that's what happens if you don't. Mm-hmm. We were at a game once. It's, it's LSU football, but it, you know, it used to be it never rained in Tiger Stadium, and it has <laughs> the past few years. And it was a few years back, maybe yeah. Kelly, were you even in college? Um, we were. We we had friends that had access to a suite. Thank goodness, because it started lightning. 
and everybody wanted the game to go on, but they they shut the game down. It would stop for a little while. They would try to start for a minute, and the lightning would come back. And we ended up staying there for hours. Mm -hmm. And luckily, we had free food, you know, because <laughs> we weren't going to leave. But it's so rare to see that, but you don't really think it's going to be you that's going to be struck by lightning, you know, or a player that you admire. I would urge people to listen to the soundbite and what Ed says at the end of the soundbite. Mm -hmm. And from here on, you'll never question yeah. or, or second-guess a game being postponed. Right. You just won't. On that note, I'd like to take a pause if we can, Galen. Um, I want to look back at a past interview I did with Dr. Joe Abraham. He's an emergency room doc, and he's also an author like you, and he doesn't write about sports so much, but he's got a, a book that's gotten acclaim, and it's called King's Conqueror's Psychopaths, From Alexander to Hitler to the Corporation. And he looks back from history from thousands of years ago and talks about the similarities between people that ran countries as dictators to the time of Hitler and his friendship with Henry Ford, of all people, and then to how he looks at the corporate world and how things are dictated by corporate America. So I'd like people to listen to this little couple-of-minute clip we did with Joe. And you can find this interview, along with Galen White's interview and about 216 others, at discoverlafayette.net. Let's take a listen. And so I molded over over the years, and I slowly started to realize that these patterns are, are historical patterns. They go back to the very earliest stirrings of civilization. And there are historical reasons that the the Cajuns and Creoles, because it is, it's a culture shared, um, their roots almost definitely go back to the 17th century, in early 17th century in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Few local people are aware that the, the first ancestors of the Acadians arrived 16 years before the Mayflower sailed. Um, in 1604. Arrived where? In, in, in Port Royal. Oh. In Nova Scotia. And the, the Mayflower would not sail until 1620. They were from? Uh, they were from Anjou and Poitou regions of France. Okay. And, uh, and the first really were a military garrison, but, mm -hmm. but there, were, there were colonists who arrived. And so they can arguably say they started in 1604. But the colonial French were not uh, the, 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 the nobility did not do a very good job of administering their colonies. And so the, the Acadians, they were not yet Cajuns, um, just began doing it themselves. And... Um, a, a Yale historian, John McFarragher, says that, uh, or he said at least privately, but I asked him about it, he said, if I said it, I'll stick by it, mm -hmm. um, that the Acadians were the first New World Republicans. That is awesome. That, wow. Uh, and we asked him, we were at uh, Warren Perrins. I love, I was just thinking of Warren. He's yeah. gonna get, I love Warren and his love of history. So. Yeah. Well, we were at his house, and so a little of it was a little reception party for John McFarragher. And um you know, the question had come up, and we asked him again, uh -huh. did the Acadian experiment with democracy and early Republican ideals influence the founders of this country? And he paused for a moment, and he said, the silence is deafening. Wow. He said, "They all the, the founders knew about the Acadians, they knew about their culture, and yet never in any of the public records are they ever mentioned. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette. So we're here with Galen White, 
the author of The Best Little Baseball Town in the World. We're talking about the history of Crowley, the history of the minor leagues during the 50s in particular. And there's so many good stories in this book. We just talked about uh, Andy Strong that died from a lightning strike. There are some other characters in the book that make it very colorful. Right after Andy Strong died, uh, the Millers were in first place when he was struck by lightning. And it uh, looked like they could win another pennant. They had won a pennant their first year in 1950. And, of course, the next two years, 52, 53, they would win the pennant then. But the, tr- the tragedy of Andy Strong, and I-, I neglected to mention that after Andy Strong was struck by lightning, they had an Andy Strong night. 2,200 fans turned out at the ballpark, only seats around 2,000. Wow. And they raised $5,000. In today's dollars, that's $50,000. That was for the widow and for the six-month-old son. Um, The team, uh, the town really rallied around the team. And and I believe it galvanized the town. And it's one of the reasons that it went on to set the attendance records it did. Beginning in 51, they topped 100,000. In the next two years, they did as well. And Crowley had about, what, 12,700 population. Yeah, so that's amazing. Uh, Somebody, there's two different pieces of math that somebody did. Uh, one was that if uh, what Crowley did in terms of 120,000 fans in 1952 was the equivalent of 80 million fans going to New York's uh, Yankee <laughs> Stadium in New York. Then somebody else calculated that meant that every infant and even the infirm went to Miller Stadium eight times that season. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So uh, they could, I guess they took accurate records. Oh, well, yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, you know, and they gave they had car nights. They gave away a number of cards. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell a story about car night later on. But right after Andy Strong, this Andy Strong incident late in the season, uh, the team went into a losing streak. In fact, at one point, the manager, Johnny George, took them to a supper club called Hester's. And ordered him to get drunk. And if he didn't get drunk, he was going to fine you $100. Well, that was a lot of money that day, and I think they all got drunk. But anyway, uh, Conklin Merriweather uh, was brought oh, yeah. in. Now, Conklin Merriweather, um, let's just say he was a troubled man. Uh, he uh, had been in uh, World War II. He was in the Coast Guard. There are reports that he had a nervous breakdown during there. He also probably had some other health problems. Um but Conklin Merriweather had trouble virtually in every town he'd ever played. In Crowley, he didn't. Uh, the troubles he had weren't very well known. He did, on several occasions, hit fans or people in the face, just for no good reason. Like to punch them? Just- right. He had a Jekyll Hyde personality. Later on, of course, it was discovered he was schizophrenic. But he was a talented ball player. He was the home run champion for the league in 52, 53. Mm-hmm. Four different times during his career, he was uh, a home run king in so the he, leagues he played in. He got away with some of this uh, questionable Yes, which behavior. today, by today's standards, a lot of athletes get away with things because true. they're great athletes. And that was also true then. Uh, this was a little extreme. You don't have too many athletes going around punching people and and nothing Fans. being done, although yeah. it has happened. But in the case of Conk Merriweather, he, uh, uh, in fact, how I got to write about the book was another ball player mentioning to me that Conk uh, asked me if I knew who Conk Merriweather was. I did not. He said, well, he was the greatest minor league hitter he ever saw, but also the sorriest human being. That he wouldn't walk on the same side of the street as Conk Merriweather for fear somebody would shoot at Conk, miss, and hit him. So uh, that was that was 
it was interesting enough when it came out uh, later on, uh, and I won't go into details of what happened to Kong, but let's just say he became infamous yeah. for for a couple murders that he committed, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and I asked the players, were they surprised? And none of them were. So after he retired, he year took, he yeah. became he was a carpenter in the Florida mm-hmm. Keys. He had a wife and three kids. And living with the family for some time was uh, a mother-in-law who was in a wheelchair and her husband and their son. And uh, Kong never made much money. So that was the financial piece was part of it, plus uh, this, this mental condition he had. He could be, he could be uh, a Jekyll one day and then a Hyde the next. Uh, he just went off the deep end. And I interview in the book his last manager who talks about the warning signs that were there. But in pro sports at that time, there was no safety net. There was no team doctor or anybody. They didn't have coaches to help you with some of the uh, hitting or pitching, really? things like that. Uh, no. It, it, that was one of the things that's different about the game. You didn't have all this uh, coaching expertise that uh-huh. the players could take advantage of. They were just but naturally the same token, talented. you didn't have team doctors. You didn't have anybody approaching any kind of uh, knowledge and mental health right. that was around. And Conk Merriweather was on his own. One of the things I wanted to avoid in writing the book, I didn't want to do something. I didn't want to do a National Enquirer mm-hmm. type of piece. And my wife would have left me probably over that because she was she was very sensitive about me writing about that for the reason is uh, Conk Merriweather had children and of course they had children and we don't use any of their names in the book. Right. Uh, I wanted to tell the story of Conk Merriweather, but I wanted to do it in a responsible mm-hmm. fashion. So I got copies of court records. Uh, he never stood trial. He didn't. No, he was uh, wound up being uh, committed. Uh, uh, insanity to uh, the state mental hospital there in Florida and up around Tallahassee. Uh, years later, they ruled that he was sane enough to stand for trial. But mm-hmm. by that time, this was in the 70s, the incident happened right in, uh, around Thanksgiving 1955. By that time, uh, it was hard to get everybody together, the key people, to have mm-hmm. the trial. So they wound up putting him on uh, parole. He was put in the custody of his uh, sister, he got into trouble while he was out on parole, and he was put back into the mental institution again, then later on paroled again. You haven't mentioned, but I mean, he was an axe murderer. Axe murderer, yes. Yes. Uh, and he, he killed, killed a mother in law, yeah. and the father in law, in trying to stop him, was killed as well. Mm-hmm. And then the son in law was injured but lived. So, uh, Conk's wife, uh, a Christian woman, uh, deeply religious, Conk was not. In fact, that was one of the issues that comes out in the book as to their differences there. Uh, Conk, uh, uh, she went on to uh, really have quite an amazing life, uh, did a lot of charity work. She worked in healthcare. I don't go a lot into that because I didn't want to reveal too much yeah. about that, that part of the family. But what I wanted to do was to cover the Conk Merriweather story in a responsible way uh, that I felt was needed to understand, have a certain amount of empathy. I'm not in a way at all condoning what happened. It was a mm-hmm. tragedy. But I think that we need to Gil. understand yeah. what happened. Right, right. There's another player, and I, I don't have my note in front of me, Galen, but there was a player that played for decades, if you can talk about... Um, oh, George Brunette. Yes. Yes. Uh, like he played all over the world, right? Right, right. Uh, George Brunette... 
uh, is in the Mexican League Baseball Hall of Fame. He pitched until age 49. <laughs> uh, he Which holds Kelly the, is a long that's time. That's a long time. And he wasn't a knuckleballer. Now, knuckleballers throw a pitch that doesn't put a lot of strain on the arm. He threw hard. Uh, he c- came through Crowley in 1956. He wound up playing for 32 teams. Uh, the columnist Jim Murray said that he was always stayed one step ahead of the posse. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a character. He is uh, featured in Jim Bowden's book uh, in a way that is a little different. Um, Brunette did not wear underwear, and Bowden noticed this and asked him one day in the locker room, George, why don't you wear underwear? He said, well, the only time you need it is when you're in a car accident. <laughs> I do remember that. But I, I thought that was interesting, not only about the underwear, but that he made it so long because you hear about all these shoulder and elbow issues, and he must have been built for baseball. Well, he did. And uh, he was a, at different times in his career, he was a heavy beer drinker. And they used to say that uh, he, he had a, his arm never tired. It was a strong arm. He never dropped the beer. <laughs> <laughs> But he was a character. He was one of the classic baseball characters. Mm-hmm. He played, uh, and he was like, should have changed his name to Rand McNally. He played in so many different towns. Right, right. He won seventy-seven games in the majors, so he he was a a, a quality mm-hmm. pitcher. In Crowley, he was only there briefly, but he pitched a no hitter, uh, and he was the first uh, Crowley player to make it to the big leagues. Uh, the Millers were part of the Kansas City A's organization at that time, but he made the jump. From Class C, that's what uh, the league was at that time, to the majors. That's a huge jump. Right. The next year, uh, Dan Pfister, and he did it in the same season. The next year was a pitcher named Dan Pfister and several other members of the 57 team also eventually wound up in the majors, but they didn't go directly from Crowley. Mm -hmm. So I write about Dan Pfister in one of the books. He recently passed away. Uh, Colorful guy, had a great career, but he had a nemesis in the league, and that Nemesis was a guy named Bob Reisner. Bob Reisner is the only pitcher in history to win 20 games in a regular season without losing one game. And he wound up being Dan Fister like three times. So that when I interviewed them both, uh, Reisner, of course, uh, uh, was quite content to let history just stand. Fister wanted to pitch another game because he wanted to try to beat yeah, Reisner. exactly. <laughs> There's so much more I want to get in Um the 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 team coach Johnny Johnny George, George uh, was a con man. Yes, turns out he was a con man. Nobody knew Nobody that knew in the it. beginning. He, he he was described early on as a mystery man. He left out one job on his uh, resume, and the local paper when they reported where all he'd managed, they left out this little town in Alabama where he tried to con a banker. And the banker caught on and ran him out of town. Uh, that was never reported as being a place he had been. He had a losing record uh, as a manager prior to coming to uh, Crowley, but he was a smooth talker. Mm-hmm. I say smooth. It was he it wasn't so much smooth, but he had a certain way. And he was uh, a young man. He was a young man. Uh, he was uh, he was someone that people I think underestimated, and he was able to then con him is really what he did. Now, in Crowley, it should be noted that he was very successful. He built the team. The team he got all well. the players yep. come in. They won pennants two of the three years he was there. And when he left, 
it was to uh, own his own team in Dublin, Georgia. Now, he uh, got into trouble there in a hurry and wound up back in the Evangel League, actually playing for New Iberia at the latter part of that season. Then he was to begin uh, the 54 season leading Lake Charles team. And then he did something that the owner of the team thought was, you might say, a little questionable, and he ran him off. Well, he shows up in Tallahassee. Uh, Tallahassee was wanting to get back into minor league baseball. They've been out for a couple years. He calls them up. He doesn't want them to know who he is. He wants to remain anonymous, and he says he has the financial backing to come in and run this team. Well, it turns out the financial backing was his old buddy from Mobile, Alabama, Emil Shiloh. Well, Emil Shiloh uh, was with him in Crowley. They also grew up together in Mobile, Mm -hmm. and they had, over time, worked a couple cons. None of them all that uh, malicious, but they, they, they liked to con particularly big shots. Oh. So they they they, <laughs> they uh, deserve it. So they they the baseball leaders uh, there in Tallahassee uh, gave the control of the team to uh, uh, Johnny George. Uh, he put together the players. Uh, brought in Conk Merriweather. Okay. So Conk left Crowley, joined Johnny George in Tallahassee. Emil Shio started on the roster there, and then he didn't play any. We brought. A lot of players who had played for him in Crowley down to Tallahassee. Now, this was a Class B. This was a little more competitive league. Yeah. Uh, they only won two out of their first 23 games, and he was soon run off. And uh, that's, this was 54. He wound up playing semi-pro ball in 55 and 56. Uh, in December 56, he uh, had a heart attack in a Birmingham jail awaiting trial yeah. on embezzlement. And died young. You can't make this stuff up. I know. I know. It is like a John Grisham <laughs> novel. And you know, one of the the overriding things that um, I guess it was it was a sadness to me was this was an era where segregation was still the norm, especially here in this area, in Louisiana, I should say. And um, Earl Long was governor, and there was there was a lot of fighting about were they gonna allow um, integration of the teams. And if I remember right, in 1956, I read that Governor Earl Long signed an act or proclamation, whatever, that allowed no um, integration of any sports events. Racial ban in effect, yes. Yeah, so you couldn't, and so the major leagues were, they were the, these minor leagues were the feeders for the majors, and they they had integrated. It wasn't mainstream yet, but they needed to be able to play with black and white players. Right. And so Louisiana set itself up in some ways for great failure. The interesting thing is that the league integrated successfully in 1954. There was a team in the league that started in Texas City, wound up in Thibodeau. And they, they had three dark-skinned Cubans. The most notable was Tony Taylor, who went on to star for the Cubs, the Phillies, and the Tigers had a, st- a very good career in the Tony majors. Tony Taylor. Tony Taylor. And he, uh, uh, in fact, there was one reporter who wrote that they expected a, a Hiroshima effect. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, wherever uh, Tony Taylor and the other two uh, Cubans went, crowds doubled. They thought they'd have trouble in New Iberia. No. The, uh, all the blacks came out and they, the attendance doubled here in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. They doubled. 
Crowley, they doubled. Well, people want to see great they baseball. Wanted, they did. You know? And so the success of that in 54 led people to believe there wouldn't be any problems later on, particularly when the major league teams started to work with the Evangel League teams. And that really was in 1956. And they, of course, wanted to send some of their black players to the league mm-hmm. uh, for development. And Lafayette had two black players. Lake Charles had three. But Baton Rouge wouldn't allow any Baton blacks. Rouge had just built a new ballpark. It was mm-hmm. city-owned, and they had a racial ban. No black players could play in the ballpark. So uh, uh, there was a lot of controversy over that. There were a couple of games forfeited. Philippe Lou, who was the most prominent of the five players in the league, because he went on to be a star in the majors and also managed, and at one point, played in the outfield with his two brothers for the San Francisco Giants, the only time three brothers have ever played in the outfield. So the Lou name is quite well known to baseball fans. But in the end, it was said that he wasn't good enough to play in this league. But that wasn't the case at all. Mm -hmm. It was because, of course, he was black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once this segregation ban was in place, I know that there was, it took a while, but the Evangelion League, as you said in our open, it, it I mean, it, it, it led to its demise. It, it really yeah, it, shut it, down it, not long after that. They, they made it through the 56 season, which is when this happened. Mm-hmm. They started the 57 season. There was a lot of, uh, there was doubt whether or not the 57 they would have the support to, to start. Because they did. the attendance was right. way The attendance down. was falling anyway because uh, over time in the 50s, television, air conditioning, and then Little League. Uh, because fans, uh, parents and grandparents mm-hmm. wanted to go see their kids or grandkids rather than some professional they don't know. So this eroded uh, the attendance throughout the minors, not just in the Evangel League. You had the racial ban situation in 56, so the Major League stopped, either ended their affiliations with teams in the league or they stopped sending black players here. Well, that affected the league. In 57, uh, they started with six teams mm-hmm. by, I think it was the uh, 4th of July. Well, by after about 30 games, they were down to four. Then Hurricane Audrey hits mm-hmm. the area. And it uh, dis- uh, destroyed the ballpark in Lake Charles. The one in Crowley, it badly damaged it. It, uh, it left uh, wiped out the power in the area, uh, too. So the teams, which normally played night games because of the heat and the humidity, mm-hmm. now had to play day games. And hardly anybody showed up right. for those day games. So Hurricane Audrey uh, was really the exclamation point on uh, in terms of the end of the league. But certainly the racial issues and these other factors, right. air conditioning, uh, little league. Uh, television, yeah. little league, played uh-huh. into it. That's so interesting. So let's hit some high points. I want to bring you back. You mentioned car night. So in its heyday, people were excited about attending games. Yes. And there was a good reason to. Well, uh, I think one year they gave away seven cars during the season. Uh, there was a dealer in town named Jerry Ashley. He was the Chevrolet dealer. Uh, you go to the ballpark now and out in Centerfield, and if anybody goes to Crowley, I urge if you can go out and see the field, and you'll see in Centerfield this little net. Uh, it's like a fishing net. And Jerry Ashley had a standing offer. If any ball player hit a ball through that net, he got a free car. Well, uh, one night... A player by the name of Jimmy Moore. He hit a ball, and it was the moment he hit it, he knew it had a chance to go to the net. He turned around and said, start that engine. <laughs> and uh, the, there was a banker sitting next to Jerry Ashley, and he started to fan him. Uh-huh. And the ball came, and it missed, missed by inches. Oh, no. 
so it didn't go in. Uh, Conk Merriweather used to go up and he'd take aim at it, and he came close a couple times, mm-hmm. but nobody successfully uh, put the ball through the net to win a car. However, many fans uh, uh, won cars there. In fact, there was one car night in 1952. Over 7,000 fans came for that car night, and uh, they had, the fans were along the third baseline, right not in the fair territory, but right along the line. And then they were back up against the outfield wall, and they had them kind of roped off. And the center fielder, Billy Joe Barrett, who wound up living in Lafayette, he married a – I'll get into this later how many of them married local girls. They called it drinking the local water. But Billy Joe Barrett was in center field. He was playing for Thibodeau. And he told me, he says, I looked around and I said, where in the hell did they get all these people? <laughs> that is so cute. So I have another question. I know that Babe Ruth was not in the best shape. So if you didn't have all these coaches and different things, were most of the players just natural? They were just naturals at this. Um, Did they grow up training to be in the game? Or if you can talk about that, the physical condition, what the guys were like that ended up playing. Well, at that time, uh, sports wasn't as – it wasn't as much money – there wasn't as much prestige as there is today. So none of them started out to be athletes. Babe Ruth, of course, was a natural talent, uh, despite his build. Mm-hmm. And in my first book, The Bilko Athletic Club, uh, about a player named Steve Bilko, and most people would know the name Bilko from the movie Sergeant Bilko, mm-hmm. and then prior to that, the television show, uh, which had a Sergeant Bilko. Well, they took that name Bilko from Steve Bilko, the baseball player. And Steve Bilko, the baseball player, was six foot one, weighed anywhere between 230 and 270 pounds. He quit uh, getting on the scale uh, because he got tired of being asked how much he weighed. Mm-hmm. So you had those kind of players who just were natural talents but didn't look like it. But as a general rule, your baseball players, certainly during the period I'm writing about, they were slender. Ted Williams, Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, Stan Musial, they're all, they were all slender men. Uh, and... So height wasn't an issue as it was in basketball. Size wasn't an issue as it was in football. So these guys were natural talent, and many of them came off the farm. Uh, Hardworking. Hardworking. And there was a real switch, too. And a lot of people talk about Jackie Robinson, and certainly race was the primary issue with Jackie. What what year did he start? uh, 47 was when he broke the color barrier in in Major League Baseball. 46 is when he entered organized baseball. But there was also a uh, bias against college-educated players. Uh, I write. I wrote a book with Ransom Jackson called Accidental Big Leaguer. Well, he went to TCU in Texas, and he went into baseball, and he didn't realize until later on that on one of the minor league teams he played for, one of the players later said, you know, a lot of the guys didn't like you because you went to college. Really? So uh, huh. uh, prior to players like, Ransom Jackson and Jackie Robinson, there weren't that many college-educated players in the major leagues. So you had a certain ruffian. Yeah. Uh, these guys, Scrappers. you know, they came off the farm. They uh, they didn't have anything, mm-hmm. and they got to where they were just by working hard and and uh, just kind of uh, out-surviving the next guy. So, you know, the thing a lot of people overlook with Jackie Robinson is he was fighting two barriers. The one... Yeah. Color, skin color, and then also because of the college education, that then made for him a uppity 
black person. You know, that that's the first I've even yeah. heard mention of that. No question. You think these players you mentioned, the Ted Williams, uh, the others, would they stand up against today's players? Oh, absolutely. Ted Williams, uh, his career, well, he, he went served in World War II in the Korean War, so he took time out. A lot of your great players, Hank Greenberg, the uh, super Jewish superstar, uh, he went and served in the military. Bob Feller, uh, even Joe DiMaggio, they all served some time in the military. Now, they may not have been on the front lines. Uh, they played baseball uh, in many of these places to help the morale of the players who were mm-hmm. fighting. But um, the these guys would have, uh, the, the Baggios, the Ted Williams, the Ernie Banks, the Henry Aarons, uh, would excel today just as they did in their time. In fact, they might even excel more. We need to wind down in the interest of time. Is there any topic you wanted to bring up about your book that I did not lead you to? Well, uh, it's, so, just, it's such a great book. I mean, people I, yeah, need to read it. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'd like to comment on the restoration of of Miller Stadium. Uh, what led to it being restored was the passion that Richard Pizzolatto, better known as Coach Piz, uh, and he's still living. He lives in the same house that he was born in. Mm-hmm. And he grew up at Miller Stadium. He was a member of the Knothole Hot, Gang. Uh, he, he just, that was his second home. When he wasn't at home, uh, there right off the, the uh, near City Hall, he was, um, he was, St. Michael's Church is where he lives near. Mm-hmm. If he wasn't home there, then he was down at the ballpark. Later on, he becomes recreation director. And the ballpark, uh, you know, had been damaged severely because of Hurricane Audrey and had never been uh, restored or rebuilt. And was looking pretty bad. And he described it as dilapidated. And he said it broke his heart. Well, he set out, got the, the help of the mayor and the city council, and they restored it. Uh, and that was in 98. And then in 2000, he began to organize these reunions. Now, these players, by that time, 2000, the last time Crowley had a team was 57. Nice. Most of these players played in the early 50s. They come back. Not just 10 15, 20, no, 75, over 100, with their families, their wives, their kids, and reliving the past. The events, they had 10 reunions overall. They started as two-day events. In the end, they lasted a week long. Uh, And so this passion that Coach Piz has uh, has just been topped off recently with the restoration of Miller Stadium again, or the enhancement, during the pandemic, the five million dollars they spent on putting artificial surface in, uh, and that helps a lot in weather like this. I don't like artificial surface because I'm a traditionalist. But you, but you get it. I get. I get it. Yeah. And then they put in our state-of-the-art lighting and uh, and modern seating. Uh-huh. So now you have a ballpark that uh, can really keep the legacy of the Crowley Millers and Miller Stadium alive. Mm-hmm. Now, Crowley's never going to have another pro team, but it can be uh, a place where uh, state and national uh, youth teams come and have tournaments, and it can be a place where this history of Crowley can really, I think, um, make it an interesting place to go. Because mm-hmm. as I was saying, to come to go to Crowley and see the ballpark See the train station and think of Babe Ruth. Go to the opera house and see his signature on the dressing room wall. 
Stand there on Parkinson Avenue and look out at where John Kennedy and Jackie looked out and saw 90,000 people. Wow. Right. Wow is right. Yeah. And that's on the, you know, people traveling to this area. It can be a destination. So I'm so glad you took the time to document this. And I remember something that we said we'd mention. There's a biscuit recipe that Fred Reggie, who's one of my friends, and I know one of yours, he gave you, and that was something from the Crowley bus station. Was this there like was a, a Greyhound bus station? Greyhound, uh, yeah. And popular uh, biscuits. Very yes, and uh, they probably it, it was close. Probably what was more popular, the Millers or the biscuits, because <laughs> they would line up early of a morning to, to uh, get these biscuits as they came out of the oven. They were slathered in butter. By the way, my wife has made the recipe twice. Coach Piz made it for me once. It has Crisco in it. Yes. yes. And Brian and, and Dr. Sibley, you know Brian Sibley? Yes. He, uh, he also has a recipe. In fact, there's, there's a little bit of competition right now as to whose recipe that really was in the book. But I, I took it off of Facebook, and I used it because uh, Fred Reggie, in putting the recipe uh, on Facebook, he said it makes you feel like you're sitting there in the bus station eating the biscuits. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was more or less his presentation of oh, yeah. the recipe that that caused me to use that. I had seen Dr. Sibley's recipe, and they're very similar. Mm-hmm. But they, it is an excellent biscuit recipe. And I, I tell people, you know, Little Richard, Dr. Sibley at one point in his career uh, treated uh, Little Richard for some illness that he oh, had. I didn't know that. Right. And that's when, and that was the source for uh, finding out that Little Richard really loved the bus station biscuits. Now, uh, there's no truth to the rumor, however, that he wrote Good Golly Miss Molly after he ate one of the biscuits. <laughs> Can you still buy Crisco? Is that on the shelf? It well, must be, huh? I, I think so, yeah. My yeah. wife followed the recipe religiously. That's so. funny. I've told the girls about trans fats. Crisco was the original way to make things yummy, you know, like right. to stay on the shelf. But, um, yeah, I want to try that recipe. Kelly, you put it in a big pan. It tastes, it's, it's it has, it's like cake. It has yeah. kind of crumbly. crumbly. Uh-huh. And Fred Reggie mis- mentions uh, how the edges are the best part. Mm-hmm. I agree. You do? That's <laughs> yeah. funny. So it, it's the only baseball book out there with a recipe, a biscuit recipe. And uh, again, I think it was all these surprises that turned up. Uh, I never thought I'd write a baseball book with a biscuit recipe. Uh, I never thought I'd write a book uh, with so many of the things that are in this one. And I think that's been the beauty of it. It, it was the, the story that was there in Crowley waiting to be told. Uh, fortunately, I allowed it to inform and inspire me, and I hope I did it justice. Oh, you did, and I'm, I'm so pleased to have you here today, Galen White, author of The Best Little Baseball Town in the World, a historical account of a minor league baseball team, the Crowley Millers, in the 1950s. And for more information on Galen about this book and your other books you've written, please visit Galen White Baseball. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and learning along with me more about Crowley and our local history here. And I also want to thank our sponsors who make this show possible. First of all, Iberia Bank, which is now a division of First Horizon, Oshner Lafayette General, and of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora. Thank you so much for taking these tapes today and mixing them to make it sound professional. Please visit our website, discoverlafayette.net, for Galen White's interview along with 216 or 17 others that are just a pleasure to have done. 
And uh, if you think about it, please subscribe to the podcast. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, thank you. This is Jan Swift.